0: Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Today we're going to start a series on the biblical principle of love. We're going to start on the biblical principle of love. One of our major goals here at Roots Community Church is to help people remove incorrect an unbiblical teaching from our own lives now when we're trying to remove incorrect teachings it will take a little bit longer than us just learning a new concept whether kind of from a blank from a from a blank slate or from the initial time that we learned something the reason for this is very simple there's a statement i heard many years ago that is very true and it's this unlearning is harder than learning unlearning is harder than learning it's another reason that if uh, you're in children's ministry or youth ministry that your role is absolutely vital and if no one has told you thank you recently for the the sacrifice that you make to be involved in those ministries thank you i want you to hear it hear somebody say thank you for that because it's very important that we try to put these biblical concepts in early in life so that when they grow older, they can lean back on them when they hear something that is not true. But I want you to just picture for a second um, if the, the teachings and belief of our life were pillars. And I just want you to just kind of imagine that there's these foundational pillars that are in our life and that we, we, we have these beliefs and on top of these pillars, these beliefs, we build upon them. But if an incorrect belief has become a pillar that we have built our life on, it can be difficult to remove because anything built on top of that incorrect belief can collapse. Anything built on top of an incorrect belief can collapse. As believers in Christ and as people of God, we have to do the difficult work of removing those pillars of incorrect beliefs and replacing them with the truth even if we experience some loss now when i was a kid i really liked the movie indiana jones and the uh raiders of the lost ark temple of doom wasn't really one of my favorites but the raiders of the lost ark I was all over that. When I wanted to be Indiana Jones, he was smart. He was kind of adventurous. He was going all over, all over the place. You know, he was looking for these artifacts. He had a really cool hat. He hated snakes. I had so much in common with this guy, um, aside from all the other stuff besides the snakes, because I really hate, really hate snakes. Um, but I really love these movies and I, and I love the components of them and I just love the adventure that was portrayed. And then the beginning of the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, he had he was pursuing this one particular artifact. It looks like a it looked like about this big. It was like this really weird, strange looking gold head. It looked like something from an Aztec ruin. And he just looked at it, and once he went through the the the, the steps to find the artifact, he kind of saw it there on this table. And he kinda inherently knew that he needed to take the idol or the, 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 the figure off of the off of the stand and replace it with something uh, that was of equal weight. I often wondered how he knew that and then it dawned on me that he had the script and I didn't. But So here he was with a bag of sand and he puts a bag of sand and he kinda gets his hands all ready real quick and if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. He, he's trying to switch it as fast as he possibly can and he takes the artifact and puts the bag of sand really quickly and nothing happens and he kinda takes a sigh of relief oh and then there's some sensor in the table or something it begins to sink and then all the booby traps go off and the structure begins to collapse in on top of him and he has to make a run for it and barely inches out to start the movie out of there to save his own life when I, when I was thinking about this, this idea of having foundational pillars in my life, this kind of picture, and a similar picture, kind of flashed through my mind. What we would like to do if we built anything in our life that is built on an incorrect belief, on an incorrect pillar, we would like to do what Indiana Jones did that day. We would like to just remove the, remove the pillar that was incorrect, and we would like to just kind of swap it really quick with some truth. And unfortunately, that's not how this works. I had this experience in my own life, and the reason that we sometimes share experiences with you is because we know that God will use our weakness and our wounds to minister to others. God will use our weakness and our wounds to minister to others. I had a similar scenario of this earlier in my life and earlier in ministry where I began to build the foundations on my, of my life on some very good godly things, but there was a portion of my life that I built on things that were I didn't realize at the time, but I came to understand later they were incorrect teachings. I spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of creativity, a lot of energy trying to build on top of this portion, this particular pillar... Of an incorrect belief when i say incorrect it just wasn't incorrect it was unscriptural was not founded in god's word and i i got to a point where as i was starting to build and giving more energy and more effort it was it was just so much self-effort that was taken to try to construct something on top of this incorrect belief it was almost like i reached a point in my life where i turned to the lord and in prayer and just said you know what god what is the problem here And he didn't even have to really answer. It was almost as if, and it's kind of how I sensed it in my heart. It was almost like he kind of just nudged the ground a little bit. And everything that was built on an incorrect pillar collapsed. When I realized I had spent time, effort, energy, money, creativity, building things upon an incorrect belief in my own life, it was very disheartening. Because it was almost as if this pillar had fallen. All my effort that I had given to these things had come crashing down and it was wasted. It didn't have anything that was going to come of it. It just collapsed. It may be momentarily disheartening if things collapse in our life. If we realize we have this pillar of something that we believe that's incorrect and we've put some time into it and we built things on top of it but the Lord has allowed it to collapse on itself it may be momentarily disheartening to see those things collapse but if they do collapse those efforts were fruitless anyway. Those efforts were fruitless anyway. It after all the things that I had built on these incorrect beliefs had collapsed in my own life, I took a second to kind of just feel the loss and experience it and, and, and be down about it and be sad about it. But I ultimately came to the conclusion as I, as I bathed and wept, uh, the, as, I, as I bathed these things in tears and, and, and wept over the things that I had lost and these actions that turned out to be fruitless, I came to the realization in prayer and as I dove into God's word that it was better for me to lose a few months or years of effort than to blindly continue building on that same incorrect truth or following that same path the entirety of my life and build something that was worthless. It was far better to experience a momentary loss to make an eternal shift than it was to just kind of Oh, let, let's just keep going. I mean, it'll work out, right? And that's not how Scripture designs, ha, has, has laid out for us as believers the, the path for us to follow. Why in the world should we talk about incorrect teaching and correcting those incorrect beliefs in our life at the beginning of a series on love? And it's very simple, is that our culture has distorted the truth about love. Our culture has distorted the truth about love. And unfortunately, that distortion, that opinion of the culture has left an imprint on the church. See, to many people, love is simply a feeling. It's an emotion to them. It's a, it's a feeling, and that's where it begins and ends when you talk about love. And for for a prime example, I'm sure you've heard somebody say this phrase, just as i have and it was this i've fallen in love i've heard many people throughout the years of ministry talk about how they had fallen in love at the beginning of their relationship and then after several years and a couple kids and all of that they have fallen out of love when we say falling in love and we make statements like that or we make statements that say i'm falling out of love what are we really saying we're saying that there was a moment of such intense uh, emotion and feeling and attraction between me and someone else that i just said this has to be love because i've never felt something this intense before and we dove in and that emotion was the the source of the decision that emotion was the thing that that took over our commitment and when we get to the point of falling out of love, what we're saying is that feeling is gone. I've lost the magic. I can't really recapture it. And now that that emotion's gone, I don't have to honor my commitment because I don't feel it anymore. And then they move on from a relationship and sometimes, unfortunately, a marriage because they don't feel it anymore. If you don't believe me just think about it real quick our culture and our entertainment industry has has entire genres of music labeled as love songs we have entire genres of movies that are called love stories or if you're a guy like me in my house we call them chick flicks why in the world does the Hallmark Channel not go out of business Every movie on the Hallmark Channel is the same story with different actors in a different city or a different country in a different time period. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. But why is it so wildly successful? It's because we get to relive that emotion of, oh, they found the right person. You know, they were working at a job they hated and big city and came to a little town and they found this person and they just realized it wasn't about all this stuff and they became in love and that's where the story ends why because they don't ever fast forward six years down the road when there's when one person has given their entire day and all of their energy to work and the other one has the the feeling of they've went through a, a full w w e wrestling match taking two young children trying to lay them down and put them to sleep and put their pajamas on them they don't show the the looking at across each other six years into the relationship where someone's breath is bad and their hair is not perfect and they're not wearing that 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 dress that you liked so much or they're not they don't have that haircut that you love so much they got to go get it cut again, and you look and go. I don't feel it at this moment. That's why they don't go that far down because there's so much response from the emotion. I'm not telling you that the emotion is bad, but the foundation of what we understand and believe with love cannot be our feelings. It has to be so much more than that. Our culture worships, entertainment and at the same time rejects god's word our culture worships entertainment while rejecting god's word and because we worship and bow at the altar of emotion and entertainment over a period of time it has shaped our cultural view of love to be nothing more than a feeling If you've been around uh, Roots Community Church for a little bit, you'll, you'll probably heard us address the incorrect belief of doing good things to be okay with God. We, sometimes I refer to this as keeping the Jesus rules so that God will be happy with us. Or, you know, you, you may hear things, um, uh, us combat beliefs that say, you know, I want to do better so God will be happy with me, or I want to do good so God will love me. All of these are incorrect teachings that we will spend the entirety of the life of our church trying to combat in every single person that they live in. The idea of us as human beings having to perform some physical act to earn God's love or His grace is never found in Scripture. It's never found there. However, the idea of earning grace, earning love, earning forgiveness, or doing ten de- good deeds to cover up my one bad deed are all ideas found in religions that are made by man. The major world religions, if you remove Christianity from that list and look at the rest of the, the major wo- world religions, all of those have all of these human efforts that try to lead to an end. They, they have requirements for me to, to pray a certain amount of time or take a certain idol and, and put it in my home or, or respond in a way to a deity through, through acts of service and bring food to an idol or all of these different hoops that have to be jumped through to try to earn love, grace, and forgiveness from these gods, these false pagan gods. We know that any religious system is man-made when it's based on rules. Christianity is the only outlier. It is a thought so high, so far above, and so high above our own human thoughts. It could only come to God. And God knowing that we would try to do things in our own effort to try to be made right with Him and would still fail, sent His Son... To tell us the truth and to show us what real love is. See, religion equals rules, but Jesus equals relationship. Being a believer in Christ is about having a relationship with Him. Now, let me just take a sidebar here real quick and explain something. Many people have relationships based on necessity. Some people don't like their business partner, but because they're good at what they do, they're going to tolerate it as long as they can before there's a big blow-up and the relationship is fractured. Some people don't like their coworkers, but they need them to perform a task, so they kind of just fake through it and have a relationship with them to get a job done some people have temporary romantic relationships and sometimes these turn sexual in nature and our our culture softens this practice by calling these casual and no commitment sexual relationships friends with benefits i can assure you that all of these relationship types i have just explained are unbiblical and are opposite of the teaching and God's plan for us as believers. So when we say that believing in Jesus and becoming his disciple is about relationship, we don't mean a transactional, a business, or a religious obligation type relationship. We mean having a true and loving relationship with our Savior and our creator. Jesus' greatest commandment was to love God with everything we have and love people as ourselves. The greatest commandment, when he was asked, when he was walking the earth, a religious teacher asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He asked for one, Jesus gave him two, and the root of both of those commandments is loving people and loving God. How do we accomplish that? How do we accomplish loving God with everything we have and loving people as we love ourselves? How do we accomplish these things if we don't have the proper idea of what true love really is? If we're looking at it from a cultural perspective, we're going after feeling, and that feeling will die down. So does that mean I don't love anymore if I don't feel it? We have to understand what true love is so that we can fulfill the greatest commands of Christ. So I want to take the back half of this message to quickly discuss three things that we need to know about love. The title of the message is Love Is, and we're going to fill in the blank with a finishing statement on these three points. Okay, So here we go. Number one, love is the highest ethic. Love is the highest ethic. Now, Paul the Apostle wrote two letters to the church, the believers in Christ in the city of Corinth. We refer to them as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now, before we read the, the, the letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinthians, before we read that letter, It's important for us to understand just a little bit of background on the city of Corinth. See, this city was originally developed by Greece. It existed several hundred years before Christ, and it was a dual port city, meaning it had a coast on the east and west side of the city, that people would travel across. Literally, ships would come in on the east side and would be by hand and manually moved onto the shore and pushed across land to the other side so they continue their journey and their and sailing towards their destination. Ancient Greeks worshipped many pagan and mythological, mythological gods and Corinth was no different the main god they worshipped was Aphrodite's. This was the Greek goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. They believed that all of those things were together, love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. Eventually, Corinth was overthrown about 148 B.C. and was occupied and rebuilt by the by the Roman general Julius Caesar in 44 BC and just a few years later it was it was the capital city of a major Roman province this is really important because we need to understand that the culture and foundation of this city of Corinth is based on on uh, false gods and false interpretations and false beliefs of what love really is they were seekers of pleasure and beauty easton's bible dictionary gives us the following notes about corinth and it sums it up really well i think the city of corinth was noted for its wealth it's for for its luxurious and immoral and vicious habits of the people it had a large mixed population of greeks romans and jews so in short corinth had the culture of corinth had been steeped in the pursuit of pleasure sensuality, wealth, luxury, and immorality with a mixed population. And I don't know about you, but if you asked me today, right now, to describe America, I think every one of these cultural traits would be applicable to our nation. Paul lived in Corinth for 18 months, a year and a half. He lived in Corinth for 18 months, so he had firsthand knowledge of how this culture operated. So with that in mind and knowing that they have a false belief, a false idea about love, a false idea about what it is, a false idea about sensuality and an unscriptural viewpoint of how they're supposed to be living their life, with all of that in mind, Paul addresses love if you've been in church for any any length of time undoubtedly you've heard first corinthians 13 referred to as the quote unquote love chapter he takes time to describe love to the this church this body of believers in this city because he knows they have it wrong he knows there's an incorrect belief and he is trying to give them the truth so, they can build their lives as believers in Christ accordingly. But before we get into his description, before we get into his description of what love is, let's back up and not read 1 Corinthians 13, but let's read the end of 1 Corinthians 12 and see what he says when, we, when he gets into these, these parts. We're going to start at verse 27. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. First are apostles. Second are prophets. Third are teachers. Then those who do miracles. Those who have the gift of healing. Those who can help others. Those who have the gift of leadership. Those who speak in unknown languages. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. He's telling them, look, everybody has a role to play. He lists out these gifts and these spiritual gifts, and he's telling them, stop arguing about who is greater, who has the better opportunity. And earlier in this passage, he says, you know, can the head look at the feet and say, I don't need you? Can the ear look at the eye and say, I don't need you? No, everybody operates their specific gift that has been given them to them by God as a part of the body of Christ. He lines out their jobs and their roles. And then after lining out their jobs and the roles, He makes a statement. But now, let me show you a way of life that is best of all. He reminds the entire church that not everyone has the same gift. Not everyone can play the same role. No one person has the has all of these attributes or gifts. It is God's plan for every individual to play their role in the body of Christ. And then he makes that statement, let me show you a way of life that is best of all and has a mic drop moment. And he starts 1 Corinthians, we're only going to read the first three verses. If I could speak In the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. What Paul is doing here is he's pointing back to these roles, these spiritual gifts, the, 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 the part of the body of Christ that every person is. And he's saying, do those things. Act accordingly. Follow your assignment. Do the thing that God has placed in front of you. But if we do all of those things, we we, we follow this path that we're all on, and we don't have love, forget it. Who cares what we accomplish? Who cares what we can do? Who cares what role we play? Paul is saying that the highest ethic, the highest pursuit of our life should be love. Paul realized that the people of Corinth had a natural tendency to use their accomplishments as a source of their identity. He realized the people of Corinth had a natural tendency to use their accomplishments as a source of their identity, and then crushes that incorrect belief in those quick three verses. Without love, we are nothing. We are merely noise, and we can't gain anything. My friends, it is very important for us to realize that the highest ethic, the highest pursuit for us needs to be love. Number two, love is a choice. Love is a choice. You know, oftentimes people who are not believers in Christ will ask the question, why doesn't God just force everyone to believe in him? I hear this argument in different apologetic seminars when people who are believers stand on a stage and ask typically younger people, college-age people, to come to a mic and ask them questions. And this question in almost every setting gets brought up. Well, I mean, we don't want to go to hell. We don't want to be in torment forever. We want to go to heaven. So how come God just doesn't force people to believe in him or force people to love him? How come you don't make them do it? I want to be very clear that if God wanted to, he could, because he can do whatever he wants. Whatever he wants, whenever he wants, he can do it. He's all powerful. But if he did what we're asking in this question, if he, if he forced us to love, if he forced us to believe in him, if he did this, we would have a world that would not know love. Why? You've heard me say this before, but it's very important to the relevance of this message is that there can be no love without choice. There can be no love without choice. Matt, I have a choice of what I'm going to do. I'm not just the sum of my emotions and just have to give in to all my earthly whims. No, you don't. You have a choice. Let's look at Galatians 5, 13 through 15 as an example. This is Paul talking to believers in Christ in the city of Galatia. For you, believers in Christ, have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and de- but if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. beware of destroying one another. Here Paul sets out a clear choice: Use our freedom to satisfy our sinful nature or to serve others in love. It's a very appropriate question for all of us who are watching and and listening this message here in the United States we just celebrated Independence Day a declaration of our freedom but my question to us is how are we using our freedom don't even take it as a question for me take it as a question from Paul are we using our freedom to satisfy our sinful nature or to serve others through love how do we choose love let's keep reading verse 16 So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. The Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. Skip down to verse 22. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. When the Holy Spirit guides our lives, we will have the ability to choose serving others in love instead of trying to satisfy our sinful nature. How can you make a statement that seems that big, Matt, that when we have the Holy Spirit guiding us, we have the ability to choose because when the Spirit, we just read in verse 22, the Spirit in us produces fruit the first one, the first mentioned fruit of the Spirit is love. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think it was put there because it rolls off the tongue or from, from a position of writing in literature. That is, it should be first. No, I believe the Spirit of God wanted to draw our attention to all of those, but up front, it confirms what Paul says in Corinthians love has to be our highest ethic and love is a choice what does this do this is further evidence that love is not a feeling but an act of will it's not merely an emotion or a feeling like we talked about earlier about our culture's incorrect belief about it it is actually an act of will now our own will consistently chooses to satisfy our own sinful desires. But with the strength of the Holy Spirit, we can choose love. I was looking at this and going back and forth on the scripture and realizing that, man, we give our life to Christ... He saves us. We become a new creature. The Holy Spirit is in us. One is now living inside us if we're believers. And he is producing all this fruit. And so, in short, when I think about love is a choice, it leads me to this conclusion from Scripture. True love grows from our faith in Christ and his Spirit living inside of us. True love grows from our faith in Christ and his spirit living inside us number one was love is the highest ethic number two was love is a choice and our third and final point tonight is this love is eternally important love is eternally important Some of you might be out there going, I get it, Matt. I understand that. I need to love. Can we move on? Why are you taking an entire series and an entire message at the beginning of series to lay down some foundational principle about love? Why spend all this time to drill down on a subject that seems so obvious? The reason is I don't want to take for granted or just assume that the culture has not left its imprint on us and our understanding of what love is. I'm going to make a big statement, but I'm going to back it up with Scripture, and it's this. We can't know true love without God. We can't know what true love really is without God. Let's read 1 John chapter 4 and we'll start in verse 7. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. In my study this week, I dug down into many things, but one of the things is the original word for that word, no. But anyone who does not um, love does not know God. That word, no, in its original context and definition, implies openness and intimacy with someone else. anyone who does not love does not know the openness and intimacy of a relationship with god because if we did have an open honest and intimate relationship with our creator we would see that god is love not the feeling not the emotion those are byproducts of something else and that is the true nature of love it can only be found with god <clears throat> if biblical love is missing from our lives it's because we don't know If biblical love is missing from our lives, it is because we don't know him.